And today as a guest speaker, we have Basu Kulkarni, partner at Quartzsite Ventures and the founder at Crossover that raised over $50 million in funding and was acquired in 2017. And in this episode, we'll talk about sports industry and how it was affected by the COVID. And also we'll talk about Basu's success, how he got there, how he managed to raise this money and how he got acquired and what he does now at Quartzsite Ventures. So Basu, let's kick it off by you giving us some background on yourself and on Quartzsite Ventures. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, long story short, I guess, is... Uh... Born in born in LA, moved to India when I was very young, which is very weird because most most immigrant families go the <laughs> other way around. Uh, but my parents had had enough of the United States and uh, and and decided to move back. And so uh, I went to India when I was very young and sort of grew up there. A huge basketball fan, um, the biggest I'd say. I'd, I'd argue. Um, uh, no, no one really has been able to, uh, to 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 combat me on that point thus far. Um, and so came back to the U.S. for college, thought I was going to play Division One basketball. Uh, clearly at 5'9", 130 pounds, I was not cut out for, uh, for Division One basketball, but uh, ended up at Penn uh, taking a lot of protein shakes and, um, and playing a lot of pickup basketball. And finally, as a senior, I walked onto the team, um, played on the JV team at Penn for a season. And during my time um, being part of the team, I realized just how old school and arcane the process of preparing for uh, for game day was in the film room. So the coaches would sit there with DVDs and rewind, fast forward, take notes on paper uh, and, and try to basically print out eventually some sort of a scouting report and hand us pieces of paper to, to read. And I'm saying to them, guys, it's, you know, it's 2008. How is this what an Ivy League school is doing um, for game day preparation? I think there's got to be better software tools that we can we can build to help you do all this. And so I actually started building a product specifically um, with that in mind to try and help my Penn basketball team get better. Graduated, moved to New York, set up shop. That product turned into a full-blown SaaS company. Um, we had about a hundred employees here in New York, uh, about 10,000 customers um, and uh, raised money, but couldn't raise money from institutional VCs. Most of them didn't quite get sports. They didn't think that the opportunity was big enough. And, you know, they all loved my team and my product and, and everything that we had done, but they couldn't quite get behind the size of the opportunity. And so you know, I ended up having to raise a lot of money from non-traditional sources of capital. So a lot of NBA and NFL team owners, a lot of Wall Street guys, family offices, uh, just not institutional funds. And eventually, you know, when we sold that business in 2017, I went back to um, to one of my biggest investors in uh, in my company, who was Dan Gilbert, who owns the Cleveland Cavaliers. And I said, hey, you know, Dan, I, I had this problem. I couldn't raise any institutional money, um, but clearly there was there's a need for it in this market. There's lots of great entrepreneurs who are building great companies in in the verticals of sports, fitness, and gaming. Three places where traditional VCs have sort of shied away from. And I think we can do uh, a great job of being a source of capital for these folks. Uh, we don't have to compete with the generalist funds. Um, we'll be able to get in at, at very attractive valuations and we can open up our network between my operating experience and all the, the people I know in the sports world and you being an NBA owner and 
um, all of the, uh, the, the, the doors that you can open, I think we can build something pretty special here. And so Dan was basically the first person to write a check into our fund. Um, and we raised a $35 million fund and got to work to prove to people that sports, fitness, and gaming, three things that were historically not seen as venture investments, um, mm-hmm. you could actually build venture returnable uh, businesses uh, with, with the right capital and the right partners with you. And so um, we've been very lucky. We, we made some, uh, some great investments early on that, uh, that have done better than our wildest dreams could have ever imagined. Um, you know, companies like StockX, um, The Athletic, 100 Thieves, Freeletics. So there's a number of companies that have gone on to sort of become household names and, um, and, and raise lots of money and build great businesses. And, and so um, you know, that's, that's been my path from entrepreneur to, uh, to now VC. That's an epic path. I absolutely love it. And I actually want to start off by talking about the fundraising process for Crossover. This alternative sources of funding are super interesting. A lot of people are asking me the same question, you know, how do I get in touch with those, you know, well-known people, someone who is alike, you know, NBA, uh, you know, team owner, because for me, it's pretty much impossible and in most cases useless, but in your case, it obviously worked. I'm curious, how exactly did you manage to get in touch with those people, you know, who are in pretty high demand? Um, yeah, it, it's it's a lot of waiting around in uh, in hotel lobbies and trying to get the right guy who knows the owner and try to convince that person that he should bring you into the inner circle and set up a meeting. It, it's, it is very, very hard in general to get in front of these guys um, because, you know, they're, they're billionaires and they have a lot of things going on and taking meetings for, for seed stage or series A companies for them, mm-hmm. is, it oftentimes isn't even worth their while. You know, usually guys like that are coming in and saying, Hey, when there's a private equity deal and you need 25, 50, hundred million dollars for me to put to work, like, cool, give me a call. Um, but you know, it, it's about finding the right guy. A lot of these guys are interested in this stuff. They have a passion for sports. They have a passion for tech. Um, and they, they tend to be shielded quite a bit by their sort of inner circle of guys who don't, who want to keep them from having to take meetings that are pointless. But if mm-hmm. you can sort of get to the right person who sees that, Hey, like you're not going to embarrass them if they put you in front of their boss. Um, then I think what you find is that oftentimes the owners of these teams uh, tend to be a lot more open-minded about making investments behind things that their own team may not necessarily feel like they should mm-hmm. invest in, but they're just, they're passionate about something. And they, and for them, you know, it's play money uh, oftentimes, like for them to write a million, $2 million check into something, it, it's, it, it's not a lot of money. And if they like you or they really like the concept or they think that they can, they can help open some doors, they'll oftentimes do it. So a, a lot of it is, you know, you, you got to just ask around, you got to figure out, you know, who's the right person. You don't want to waste the time of someone who's not at all going to be interested in what you're doing. But if you can find uh, based on historical deals that they've done or their past life or what their primary business is, if you can find some sort of common ground with them, then I think it makes it easier. And for me, I think, you know, basketball was that common ground in many ways where you put me in front of any NBA owner, any player, you know, within, within five minutes, they realize that I just live and breathe basketball. And so that conversation just becomes 
more of a friendly conversation. It doesn't even become really a pitch at that point. You're, you're mm-hmm. just talking basketball. And, uh, <laughs> and oftentimes with guys like that, it's about building the relationship. It's For them, like I said, there's no amount of money that I can make a billionaire that's going to move the needle. So whether I sell a company for a hundred million, 200 million or a billion dollars, and they end up walking away with 10 million, 20 million or 50 million in returns. Like it really doesn't move the needle for them. And so oftentimes I I feel like what they're investing in is just a person that they believe in and an idea they believe in and someone that they can actually just have a cool conversation with. Um, and that oftentimes has nothing to do with the company you're actually building. It's just about who you are and do they believe in you. So uh, that that's really what I found. You know, they don't have the same sort of um, parameters that a venture capital firm has. They don't have return thresholds. They don't have mm-hmm. a portfolio that they have to look at how they've allocated capital to. Like none of that matters for these alternative sources. They're just they're looking to do cool stuff sometimes, and that that can be beneficial to a company that might be having trouble raising from institutionals. Right, and let's talk about this problems of raising from institutionals. Um, When exactly was the point when you were like, okay, now it's time for me to go out and raise some money for crossover? Was it when you've generated enough traction or was it when you tried to scale up your team or when was that point when you realized that, you know, capital is basically essential, additional capital? Um, I mean, right from the start, honestly, I mean, I was coming straight out of school. I didn't have a single dollar to my name. And, um, and I knew that I had to raise capital for this business. This wasn't a business where you could kind of do some stuff on the side and sort of build up a client of rosters or something. There was nothing we could do. We either had to build a product or there was nothing. Um, and in order to build a product, you need an engineering team and in order to have an engineering team, you know, you need money. And so, um, also this was 2008 and you're talking about up, being able to upload gigabytes of video, encode it, uh, have it broken down. Like there are a lot of things today that we take for granted from a technology standpoint as stuff that's been solved so many times over that you can just grab some things, throw them together and you can have a V1 product, you know, whatever, a point, point, a 0.9 product and put it out there in beta back in 2008, trying to get people to upload five gigabyte video files was, I mean, it was like pulling teeth. It was so <laughs> difficult. And, and a lot of these customers of ours didn't have good internet connections. It would stall. They would have just spent three hours trying to upload a game and then it would fail. And now they got to start the whole thing over. And so there were so many things we had to build from a technology standpoint, just infrastructure wise that, uh, that we needed capital. And, uh, but, but I, there was, you know, I didn't have a VC network. I didn't have any network. I'm not even from the country really. So, uh, you know, it was a lot of going around meetups here, there asking for intros. And, you know, I got pretty close with a number of funds. Um, and, but, but no one would get over the hump with us. Uh, they just didn't feel like there was uh, that the, the market size was, was always going to be an issue for a business like this. And so, you know, eventually ended up first money came from a family office in Singapore. Um, then, you know, a couple of angel groups for former entrepreneurs. Then I got introduced to a group of Wall Street guys. And those guys put me in touch with some hedge fund guys. And, and you know, one thing led to another, but it was they were all referrals. Like all of that money came from one guy saying, OK, I'm in. Let me tell my buddy about it. 
and his you know his buddy coming in and saying okay i'm in for 50 grand let me tell three other guys about it and <laughs> eventually getting you know four or five million dollars together from guys like that and then eventually once i got introduced in the series a series b to you know the the larger um sort of team owners and their family offices then those conversations you know became about three million six million dollar checks each and they were much bigger uh, but, you know, the first two rounds, first three rounds actually was just passing the hat and collecting 25s and 50s and 100s. <laughs> I like how you say passing the hat. While for most of my listeners, like 25 and 50s, that's their first round. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's cool. That's cool. Uh, but here we're moving on to a question that I personally really like asking my speakers. And it's uh, what do you think was the major mistake that you've done while raising money? Uh, so if you could go back in time and change something in your fundraising process for a crossover, what would it be? Um, I don't know. Well, I think one thing is I would have realized probably sooner that this just wasn't cut out for VCs, right? And and there was no point spinning my wheels as much as I did continuously flying to both coasts and meeting all the VCs and taking all those, taking all the time. It's sort of like there's a, yes, sometimes there's like, hey, you got to get, you know, 20 no's, 30 no's, and you'll, all you need is one. But like on the flip side, I think I've learned that there are certain types of businesses that you will realize pretty quickly, like if the reason why people aren't coming in is, and you, it's the same reason over and over and over again, that like, okay, like maybe this just isn't set up to be really a venture scale business and that's fine. Like there's nothing wrong with that. I think the greatest businesses in the world are, were not necessarily set up as venture scale businesses. Today with the tech world, yes, you see a lot of the guys like the Facebooks and the Amazons who were um, who were subsidized by venture dollars for so long in in sort of the hopes of building something huge and they've done that but the bulk of businesses out there don't really end up like that and so to to have somebody i wish somebody had just sort of sat me down the way i've been able to sit many entrepreneurs these days down sort of explain to them just straight up very candidly why what they're building probably is not a venture scale business and so therefore why they should just stop wasting their time trying to go to institutional VCs, instead focus on, you know, bring in some angel investors, go to alternative sources of capital and just build up a profitable business. And it, it's a mindset. It, it really, you have to change the way you do business if you are building a venture scale business or whether you're trying to build something sustainable. And, but, but it's really hard to switch gears midway through. So, you know, with me, I mm -hmm. do wish oftentimes if someone had had that conversation with me, what I would have been able to do at some point, as hard as it would have been, is I think we could have even switched gears at a certain point and said, you know what, like, let's just, let's trim the staff, let's change the way we're doing some things, and let's just build this to be a sustainable, profitable business, and we'll, we'll continue to grow it slowly, rather than just trying to swing for the fences all the time. It's a mistake that I think a lot of companies make. And so... Um, for me, I think I spent too much time trying to chase VCs and, and, and so, and I just shouldn't have done that. I could have just done so many more productive things with my time. Um, in the end it worked out and I got capital from other folks, but I probably could have saved a lot of time and a lot of effort, um, on the institutional side. That's probably the, the, the number one thing that I would have probably changed is, 
is gotten some good advice and taken it to heart and used that to to just decide which way to go. And I think the problem with a lot of VCs is they don't want to give you that that candid feedback because there's always the well, what if, right? What if this does turn yeah. out to be venture scale? And six months or twelve months from now, I want to be able to come back to the entrepreneur and 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 have him take my money. But I think what they don't realize, and I've realized this because I faced that as an entrepreneur and now I'm on the other side, is that as an entrepreneur, I will greatly, greatly appreciate you for giving me that candid advice. And it's fine. Like if I prove you wrong 12 months from now and you come back to me, I don't think I'm going to be the kind of, unless I'm the most vindictive person out there, I don't think I'm going to turn around and say, I'm not going to take your money because you gave me this advice 12 months ago and I proved you wrong. Like, I don't think there's anything, you know, I, I don't think that, that that's necessarily the way the world works, but I think VCs just feel like they can't give you candid feedback. And so therefore they come up with all these various excuses like, oh, I'm not sure about market size. Oh, I'm not sure if you can scale. Oh, I don't know if this is the right team to execute. Like they just make up a bunch of things that they feel like won't hurt the the feelings of the entrepreneur as best as possible so that they leave that door just slightly open uh in case they want to come back in <laughs> <laughs> leaving the door just slightly open that's just like the perfect definition of most vcs it's it's i think that's more about the fear of missing out you know if you say something definite about the company like yeah i know they're not going to scale much and you know two years later they're scaling to the rate of amazon or something like that and everyone's just going to laugh at you. So that's, I think that's the major reason for why that's happening. But yeah, perfect advice. You know, uh, really, that's a lot. Uh, I've heard that from a lot of my speakers, you know, just take a look at your company very seriously and try to understand what kind of company is it. Should you even raise money? Should you go to VC? Should you go to family offices? Or should you just stick with revenue? Um, so here we're moving on to the, you know, exciting to the happy ending part, which is the exit of crossover. How did this happen? How do you actually plan for the acquisition from uh, early days or did you just, you know, did you just get an email saying, hey, I want to acquire you? Uh, no, we had I, the group that ended up buying us had approached us about a year, a year, a year, year and a half prior um, about doing something. And we had kind of said, ah, I don't we don't think the timing is right. And we also don't think that you're the right buyer right now uh, for, you know, for where we are at and where you're at, we don't think now's the right time. And uh, we had just, you know, moved on. And then they kind of circled back and said, Hey, you know, a year later, like, Hey, things, some things have changed on our end. And we think that there's, you know, a, a path to which we could make this, uh, make this work. And so we got down to it and, and look, uh, we had, we, I think we had also sort of started to realize ourselves that, um, you know, this wasn't necessarily going to be a, a massive, massive venture scale business where we wanted to continuously raise money um, and keep keep moving forward on our own. I think uh, growth rates were certainly starting to slow down a little bit. Market was getting a little saturated. There were a number of players. There was a huge competitor. Um, and so all of those factors combined, I think our board kind of looked at the business and said, all right, listen, um, what you know, if we, if we don't sell now you know, and we end up raising more money, um, you know, what do we have to achieve in the next two to three years for everyone to still make the same amount of money as they might make now? 
right? And that was sort of the math that we did in our head was mm-hmm. like, how much, how much bigger would we have to get to essentially end up at the same place, let alone have to do better than what we're going to do now. And when we sort of did that math, we kind of came to the realization like, wow, like we're going to have to grow a lot more to sort of get the same sort of outcome here. And that's going to require a hell of a leap of faith for us to believe that we're going to do that. And we just didn't think with the, with the market that we were in, which was sort of high school and college sports, that there was enough of, of a market left for us to go after. And so now it's like, okay, well, what new markets can we go after? What new products can we build? Um, and we didn't, we didn't have the answers to those questions. We hadn't really spent the time to, to really think about those things because we had been so heads down for seven years just trying to build the best product we could for our existing customer base um, that in the end, it just seemed like, all right, now's, now's the time. There's an offer on the table. You know, we, we called a few other folks to see if there was any interest. Um, there, was, there was nobody else that was stepping up and saying, hey, yeah, we'll give you a competing offer here. Uh, there were some people that were like, hey, look, we really like what you have. Like, we can't move right now, but come back to us in six months. And, you know, my board was like, look, man, there's there's something on the table here. Are you really going to risk losing this and then stay st- stick around for another six months to a year, hope someone else comes with a better offer? Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, you have to go raise another 10 million bucks to survive. Like, do we really want to do all that? And in the end, like, there, there was no clear answer, but it was sometimes you just gotta you gotta take what's in front of you and and move forward and so we ended up uh we ended up selling the business and you know it was it was definitely bittersweet it was the only job that i've ever had so for eight years of (laughs) of running a company that was that was my baby that was a, a tough one to to have to walk away from um but it was what it was and everything worked out and uh and and i think that the really good part was that i had sort of courtside immediately for me to be able to jump into like literally the next day, right? It was not that I left the company, but like they didn't really have much for me to do. So once, once we signed the documents and they took over the business, you know, I was just sort of there as a figurehead every day who would come into the office, but I, I didn't really have much of a role. And so for someone who had literally worked 18, 20 hours a day, for for eight years to build this to suddenly the next day not have any any work to do like it would have been i just don't know what i would have done with myself and so it was really good that courtside had already been formed at that point and so it was sort of an easy transition for me to actually have something to do on a day-to-day basis and then you know eventually a year passed and the acquirers were just like hey like we don't we don't really need you around here anymore either uh, you know, you're free to leave. And so I said, I said, no problem. I've, I've already basically left. So <laughs> nice. That's a really great transition. And that's a good transition for us to move on and talk about courtside ventures. What do you invest in through courtside ventures and uh, what field and what stage in? Yeah, so we're, you know, very, very, um, very, very focused as I had said, right. Which is sports, fitness, gaming. That's it. Um, so on the sports side, we generally look at uh, subscription media companies, people creating sort of new forms of content. Um, we've done some stuff in the collectible space, um, technologies that can help with video capture and uh, and other sorts of stuff like that. Um, 
on the fitness side, we've done fitness apps, we've done connected devices. Um, we basically, you know, we fit fitness in general, we think is, is sort of evolved quite a bit in the last decade from, from big box gyms. We eventually went to sort of more boutique fitness studios. And now from boutique fitness studios, you know, we're starting to see more in-home stuff, partially, mm-hmm. partially because of COVID, no doubt. But um, even prior to COVID, there had already be this shift had already begun um, towards people wanting to be more flexible, work out wherever they are, whenever they want to. And COVID just accelerated the hell out of that. And so now you're just seeing so many interesting things happening in the fitness space. And then on the gaming side, you know, we, we look at uh, gaming studios who are building new types of, uh, of games. Uh, we look at uh, core tech and tools. So things that, that, that game developers can use to make better games and to, to help with that whole process. And then we look at social things. So, you know, gaming is inherently social. Uh, I think there's been a, a, a big shift in the way you think about gamers. You know, a couple of five, 10 years ago, you may have thought of the gamer as sort of the, the slob in his mom's basement who's sitting there till three in the morning playing video games. But like today, you know, my mom is probably a gamer because she plays Candy Crush on her cell phone, right? And so it's a completely different paradigm shift. And, and that is what has sort of turned this into a monster industry that is you know, generating $150, million, $150 billion a year in revenue globally and continuing to grow. Um, so we, we're, we're very, very excited about gaming. We just brought on uh, our third partner about a year ago uh, who was leading gaming and, and esports at Comcast Ventures. He, he left and, and joined us. And so Kai's with us, uh, my partner Deepin and I uh, sort of, we, we faked it till we made it on the gaming side in, in our first fund, but now with our second fund, we, um, we, you know, we, we needed to have uh, someone who actually knew this space really well because we wanted to focus <laughs> on it a lot more. So we, we added a third partner. And so there's three partners and three, three verticals that we, we focus on. We, we sort of do every deal together. Um, you know, there's a lot of funds where they sort of have one partner who'll focus on one thing and, and they're mm-hmm. just in charge of it you know, with us. While we do have a little bit of that, you know, every single deal, all three of us have to dig in together. We all have to unanimously agree that we're going to do this deal. Um, and, and so it, you know, it, it, we, we share, we share the, the blame for the losses, but we also celebrate every win together uh, as opposed to it sort of being, you know, a certain partner's win. Right. That's a nice, nice approach to investing, I think, and provides definitely provides some coverage, becomes a team sport. Um, so let's talk about the COVID situation specifically. Actually, no, let's keep the COVID situation. I think you just covered enough. I don't want to dig much more into this because it's just pretty much everywhere here. Uh, but let's talk about the early stage founders trying to start something in the gaming field, because I'm personally, I love the gaming field. I'm personally somewhat a gamer, just a little bit. Uh, and I'm curious exactly how would you recommend those, you know, uh, gaming or founders in the gaming field to start their companies? Where should they start? Um, well, it depends on what they're doing. Obviously, I think we're seeing a big shift to, to free to play now. Um, right, uh, in, 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 as opposed to what was historically in the video game industry, a $60 license that you bought for a console game or mm-hmm. even a PC game. You know, now increasingly everything's moving to free to play, a lot of in-app stuff. Um, you're seeing changes in, in the forms of distribution as well. Um, 
and so mo- mobile we think is a is a huge huge part of that so you know we just made the biggest investment we've ever made out of either of our funds in a company in india called winzo games um which is the indian market and you just been there for like a second oh, uh, for like 10, 10 seconds yeah can you so you've made the largest investments in oh, right. so, both yeah, of your so funds Yeah, the largest investment we've ever made out of either of our funds in a company called Winzo Games in India. Um, basically, they're a cash gaming platform. And so, you know, when you think about India, right, we have 600 million smartphone users in India today. Um, and that's growing very rapidly, 1.5 billion total people. So, like, we're still talking about a third of the market only that has smartphones. And, you know, the Indian consumer has been tough to crack. uh because of purchasing power and societal norms and the way they do things um you know every gaming company knows that there is a huge opportunity in india but you need to figure out how to crack the monetization so these guys have sort of done an unbelievable job of building a, a mobile gaming platform where they don't actually make any of their own games what they do is they essentially act as a publisher for uh for companies that have games they put them on their platform and they essentially allow people to wager money to play each other in these games so whether that's head to head or whether that's in a tournament format like a almost like a daily fantasy uh type of a of a pool where you know everyone's throwing in a dollar each and the winner walks away with $5000 for winning um so they've basically been facilitating that sort of uh of gameplay and you know they're they're on track you know by next year i think they'll they'll end up crossing probably a billion dollars that are that that has gone through the platform wagered right. in a country like india which is unheard of right um so so i th- i think there's this sort of intersection of video gaming real money gaming um it it's all sort of coming together we've seen sort of now uh the cross section of fitness and gaming where there's uh people who are building sort of the next generation of the Wii if you will where you can play a game and have a ton of fun but while you're doing it you're actually getting a hell of a workout in so there's there's sort of this this blending i think of of different worlds here um and so for us as a fund that sits across sports fitness and gaming three verticals that are kind of converging in some ways um we're just super super excited about everything that's going on there right now absolutely yeah it's super exciting world right now especially with the covid uh so good luck with that and i'm pretty sure things will go really well so here on this positive note we're moving on to the last question of today's episode which is a call to action so what's the one thing you want the listener to do as soon as the episode is over Well first I want them to make sure they're registered to vote in November. That's the that's the number one thing. <laughs> right? That's that's more important than anything anyone can be building right now. Um but uh you know once once you've registered to vote, I would say uh you know check check out um everything that's going on in sports fitness and and gaming. I think you'll you'll uh be pleasantly surprised by uh by the passionate entrepreneurs that are building amazing companies here and And obviously if you uh if you're a founder and you're building something in this space 
um, please reach out to Courtside Ventures. You can go to our website, courtsidevc.com. You can find me screaming on Twitter all day long about sports and, <laughs> and all sorts of other things at Vasu. So you can, you can always tweet at me there and, uh, and I, I almost always respond. And um, yeah, like we, we just love to find other good people to, to do deals with all the time. Perfect advice. Absolutely great. I'll definitely make sure to leave a link to Courtside Ventures in the description of this episode. I might as well leave a link to the registration to vote because I believe this year go. they're doing this uh, like postal voting. So you don't actually have to go anywhere. You just have to do it over mail. So that's something new. For those of you who don't know how it's done, me included, by the way, <laughs> I'll leave a link to some guide or something like that that I'll find on the internet. So we'll Love wrap it. it up here. Register, check out uh, Courtside Ventures and have a good day.